Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Law School Lounge podcast. This is a Carolina Academic Press production where we discuss everything law school. The Law School Lounge is a place for students and faculty alike to discuss law school and the law. We hope you'll hang out with us for a while. Law School Lounge for this special bonus episode with Professor Tanya Monastir. I'm ecstatic that she wanted to come back and talk with me again, and we really wanted to deliver something that we felt was meaningful and also really timely, especially at the beginning of another school year. And so we sat down to discuss womanhood in law school and law, providing just a little bit of insight as to what things you might experience, how we went about handling those things personally, and exploring sort of the feelings or consequences or pros and cons that can come along with some of the circumstances that women identify with specifically in the profession and in the law school setting. Now, I want to preface our conversation by saying that Tanya and I are both out of law school for more than 10 years, and of course, we are both white women, and so our perspective is our own here. We in no way expect that our perspectives, our advice, our experiences are completely comparable to what every single person, given their circumstances, their backgrounds, will experience or how they may choose to handle a situation. As we mentioned many times throughout the episode, a lot of it really comes down to circumstances and on a case-by-case basis. We just wanted to essentially share some of our own experiences and what we did and things that we thought were important to get the conversation started, to give people space to talk about these issues, and to address some things that are unfortunately common, even if they look a little bit differently to every person and every woman who experiences these circumstances. We are considering turning this into a mini-series that would remain part of the Law School Lounge podcast. It would appear in the regular feeds. The idea would be to cover issues we didn't get to in this episode. We would dive deeper into some of the topics we were able to discuss, and it might be that other people join us in the conversation And these additional guests will be able to offer their own perspectives from different backgrounds, from different circumstances, and provide insights that Tanya and I aren't able to provide. But the goal is to provide a well-rounded conversation with all different perspectives, all different thoughts, and provide as much information around this topic and as much discussion as possible. So with that being said, Tanya's book, Shit No One Tells You About Law School, does have a chapter called A Chapter for the Girls, and we currently have in the works to release that chapter from the book 
for free for anyone who wants to read it. So stay tuned for more information on that. I will provide it as soon as it's available, both on social media and with an update in a future podcast. If you aren't already, please head over to our social media and give us a follow. You can find us on Twitter at Law School Lounge. You can also find us on Instagram at Law School Lounge. And that's where we'll be able to share information with you about, of course, future episodes and previews for other interviews. But I'll also be sharing information about this chapter on those profiles. Okay. So I know that was a longer introduction than normal. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate you. Let's dive into the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Law School Lounge. I am so fortunate to be joined once again by Professor Tanya Monastir. She is here today, and we are going to be talking about what it's like to be a girl in law school. And I'm so excited to be discussing this topic with you. Thank you so much for being with me here again. Of course, I'm so excited to be doing this. And I mean, there's so much that can be said when you're talking about being a girl in law school. And I think particularly now with sort of the outside context with all kinds of trends going on in social media, topics being covered in mainstream films, we have a lot of room to talk about these topics that we might not have really had before. And so I really appreciate you coming here to talk to me about this today. Of course. Yeah, yeah. And I know you address this in your book, Shit No One Tells You About Law School. And so I know in there you talk a little bit about your own experiences, which I'm sure we'll touch upon today. But let's just run through sort of common occurrences, those issues that girls tend to see most frequently in law school. And the first thing I actually want to talk to you about is just what it's like making friends as someone who identifies as a woman in law school. What is that like? What was it like in your experience? Yeah, it's funny you should ask. Um, <laughs> I I didn't have very many friends in law school. I don't know if that had to do with the fact that I'm female or just because I'm me. But um, <laughs> making friends, I think, is is always challenging. I think making friends in law school is particularly challenging. It tends to be a very competitive environment, or at least it's perceived as competitive. And I think as a 1L, generally, when you come in, there's just a lot going on. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of nerves. And so making friends, male or female, I think, is is tricky. Um, I think with, you know, females, there's some other like weird dynamics that sometimes tends to happen. You get clicks, you get the mean girls, you get the frenemies. And so there's like a whole bunch of stuff that happens that is not necessarily unique to law school, but replicates what might have been females' experiences in high school and in college. I mean, things don't change because you go to law school. A lot of people say law school is just like college all over again. 
So what's interesting about what you mentioned is you mentioned high school, which I don't I don't know what your necessarily like your undergrad experience was like, but I went to a huge undergrad institution. I went to the University of Connecticut and like I did that on purpose, right? Because I had gone to a smaller high school and was like, yeah, big is for me. I need to kind of switch that up. But law school, when you head to law school, there really aren't big law schools, right? They're just not built that way. They're smaller class sizes. And inevitably, you find yourself having a lot of the dynamics that you had in high school, because everyone knows everyone, people are talking about things, everyone kind of knows everyone's business. And you do kind of get categorized, like you said, into cliques and groups, and it's very mean girls ask, if you will. <laughs> so I definitely it, it see be. that. It can be, right? Um, I was pretty fortunate, I think. I didn't have necessarily that sort of experience, I don't think. But I think part of that is because I like didn't have time to have that experience, which I think is another thing in law school. It's hard to make friends just because there's not a whole lot of time, right? Um, and so when you are able to connect with someone, you really need to kind of emphasize that connection and make sure that you're making it grow and, and foster that relationship. But some of the girlfriends I had in law school were some of the best friends I ever had. They were wonderful people. And then there were girls that I could maybe not see myself being friends with for one reason or another, but that's normal. I think you're not always going to be friends with everyone else. But as far as like the dynamics between different groups of girls in law school specifically, what have you seen? Do you, have you seen that there's maybe like a decrease in sort of when women tend to mistreat other women, like sort of those types of dynamics? I've seen them kind of decrease. Have you seen the same? Or do you think it's still really common, like among your students? Yeah, I, I think it's common. Um, I actually, it, just based on what I've seen completely non-scientifically, right. <laughs> you know, men tend to form stronger friend groups that continue beyond law school. I think a lot of the friendships that at least the females I've encountered, the friendships that they've made are very precarious and tend to fizzle out. And there's a lot of kind of hidden jealousy or pettiness that underlies some of these relationships. And I've, I've seen it happen um, time and again with, with females where, you know, you've got two girls who are, you know, best friends or best law school friends. Um, but then they'll come to me privately and say, well, so-and-so did this or said that, or, you know, uh, you know, I got an A and they got a B. And since then things have been really different. And so there's just this weird stuff that, that I see happen where, you know, and again, this is not across the board. I'm not saying this to generalize, but I have seen the jealousy play out in terms of grades, in terms of jobs, in terms of relationships. Um, and it just tends to be more common among females than among males. And and the other weird thing is that um, for whatever reason, I've noticed that females are not good about um, just 
cutting their losses and moving on. It's almost like they continue in the friendship, quote unquote friendship, just to avoid strange social dynamics. So they might just kind of stay friends with this person or in this group, even though there's some dysfunctional stuff going on. Um, and, you know, whereas I think guys would be more like, yeah, I'm not interested in this drama. And so, so they tend to move on. Um, so it, yeah, I, I would love to say I've experienced a decrease or I've seen a decrease, but I, I wouldn't say that's true. Interesting. And, you know, when you have a student who comes to your office and is having these concerns and issues, what do you tell them? You know, it's interesting because I feel like buried within your question are two different questions, right? Because one is um, about the friends themselves. Like, what should you do if you encounter that? The other is kind of like a double gender thing, which is, it's interesting they come to me, right? A female professor to offload um, on. And so, you know, I'll, I'll kind of go in reverse, right? So there is you know, emotional burdens associated with a lot of female labor. So as a female law professor, I do a lot more work on the emotional end of things with students, not just females, but males, right? Because there is this perception that, you know, so-and-so will, I'll be able to go to them to tell them what's going on with my life and my problems and like to deal with emotional well-being issues in a way that you wouldn't with your male professors. And so, you know, throughout my career, you know, I sit in my office and, you know, students will be in my office crying and unloading on me and that's fine. I'm, I'm okay with that. But I realize that that is, unpaid emotional labor that I, as a female, am taking on that my male colleagues tend not to take on. So that's kind of one part of it. And the other part of it is, what do I tell them? I have told you know, female law students that come to me and say, like, you know, Christine and I were best of friends, but now since the midterm, it's it's weird and I can feel her pulling away or she did this weird thing. You know, like there's always something and there tends to be something that precipitates it. And I'll just say, like, life's too short and you don't have enough hours in the day to continue to be friends with this person. And so don't like don't invest in it. Don't try to you know, if you want to fix it, have a uh, forthright conversation with this person. But it seems like, I don't know if it's an age thing, a gender thing, a whatever thing, but nobody wants to actually have a face-to-face -face confrontation or communication about a relationship. And so all this takes place where it's like, um, below the radar, but they're still pretending like everything's okay up on on the surface. And so maybe it's it's a maturity thing. Maybe it's it's like I'm 22 years old and I don't feel like I want to have some sort of like upheaval or drama. So I'm just gonna like let it all go. But there's there's a lot of drama lurking under the surface. And like I said, it often has to do with grades jobs, perspective jobs, and, you know, uh, attention from the, you know, from the opposite sex, usually. Yeah, and I would agree. I mean, I think those are the common three sort of things that you would see this arise or the most common problems that these students see. But, you know, it's interesting you bring up the whole not wanting to talk about things face to face. And I think it's interesting because, you know, 
I think it is partially a generational thing, but I also think it's just that before people kind of had to do things face to face, right? And now like a lot of people are like, oh, whatever. I mean, that's why the whole term ghosting exists in the first place, right? And right. There's just this people are like, well, I don't really have to. We're in <laughs> there once was a time you couldn't text somebody or send them a DM and and talk to them that way. And so I think that's an interesting point. And it actually brings me to the next thing I want to talk to you about, which is social media. So when I arrived at college, social media was like just coming really big, like Facebook. I was the first college class to like have open access to Facebook. Um, but it was only college students. And so, but it pre presented sort of like a whole new ground for drama and mistreatment and like other kinds of things to fester. And what made me think of it is the communication element you were just talking about, right? You end up meeting a lot of people before you even get to law school, if you can find all the people who were in your class and that kind of stuff. And so my question for you is, you know, what would you recommend for women in regards to social media? I mean, when I went to school too, there was sort of this thought, just don't be on social media. Um, it was like, just don't do it. Just get rid of it. And I haven't been on social media for a very long time because of it. But I think there has been sort of a pulling away from that sort of hardline mentality because people have integrated social media into their lives on so many levels at this point. And so if you're going to be on social media, which I think most people are, what would you recommend? Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I do have thoughts. And, you know, it's funny you should say that when you went to undergrad, you know, Facebook was becoming a thing. When when I went to undergrad, Google was just becoming a thing. So um, yeah, that's, that's a long time ago. And um, I am sure that some people view my thoughts on social media as, as antiquated, and that's fine. Everyone can have different opinions. Um, I know that when I expressed my opinions about social media in the past, a lot of people were very sort of angry, and I didn't say anything that I thought was outside the lines. My only point in my book and what I've said to my class before is just know that social media is public, right? And when you're entering a professional field, know that prospective colleagues and recruiters and lawyers will be able to see what you put on social media and may judge you for it, right? And and by that, I'm not saying, you know, don't do what you want to do, but just more be cognizant that there could be effects down the road. And even saying that was just like, how dare you? And that's anti-women. And, you know, I don't see it as as anti-women. It's, I see it as, hey, this is the reality that you are facing. And so if you want to take pictures from the party and you're like scantily clad, half naked, and you've got, you know, cigarette in one hand and a beer in the other, and you want to post that all over some kind of public forum, um, it might be that nothing happens, right? Not a big deal. Or it might be that the the lawyer who is thinking about interviewing you and who's looking you up finds that picture and goes, 
eh, you know what? Like, I feel like somebody who decides that that's a good idea to put that out there is not a good fit for this firm, right? And so I just think that it's true, not just of pictures, but of, of any communications you put out there. Um, so my, my only message is simply be aware that social media is public and that might have ramifications for you in some way, shape or form going forward, right? And there actually might be some like positive benefits, um, but you know, just thinking that you're communicating with your little friend group and your little world when you put things on social media is kind of a bad way to, to approach it. So I guess that's what I would say about putting things out on, on social media. I think the bigger, the concern I have about social media is one that's been kind of percolating throughout the academic literature in the past couple of years. And that is that it's it's just really bad for you. It's bad for women in particular, and it's bad for um, self-image. And so the idea that you're comparing yourself to these perfectly curated people online, whether those be your you know, friends or future colleagues or whatever, everyone obviously puts the best version of themselves out on social media. And so it could really tap into a sense of underlying insecurity and ultimately just lead you down this kind of like negative spiral. And I think when you get your validation from social media, that's just not a, a good place to be, mm-hmm. right? And it's very easy to fall into that trap, right? And and I say this as somebody who's not like a huge social media person. I have a Twitter account, but I rarely post. And I have a LinkedIn account to basically stay in touch with my former students. And, and that's about it. But, okay, but I will say that when I post something, I'm like checking. I'm like, did did people like it? Are there comments? Like, and it's like this weird, I don't even recognize myself because I have this like anxiety over like a completely innocuous post. Like, for instance, for this podcast, if I post this, I'll probably post it on my my LinkedIn. Then I'll be like, you know how many people saw it and who's liking it and who saw it and didn't like it or, you know, um, and, and I get like all up in my head over something so, so silly. And so um, if that happens to me, I'm sure that happens to, to other people. And particularly when you're in your formative years, right? When you're in your early twenties and you're starting law school or you're starting your career as a lawyer, you know, it's a time when you feel really insecure, right? About your, um, your intelligence, your um, career prospects, about your ability to measure up. And so when you couple that with, just seeing what everyone else is doing. Um, I just think that's that's a recipe for disaster and for kind of like depression, anxiety, and other mental health issues. Those are all points well taken. I think they're, I mean, don't, don't quote me on this, but I feel like there are lots of studies out there <laughs> that say that social media is just not good for anyone's mental health for lots of reasons. Yeah. And- yeah. And there's a new book coming out on it too. Oh. Yep. And I can get the name. It's by, I want to say, like, uh, 
it's by the same author who wrote the coddling of the american mind huh. yeah okay i'll have to check it out because yeah i mean you know it's interesting because we're finally seeing the first generation of people who essentially have grown up on social media and by that i mean there are plenty of people out there whose parents have been posting since a child was born and now it's like just coming and going and going and so social media at that point is such a big part of their lives and that there's like a lot of legal questions about whether or not they should be posting but you know blah 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 there's lots of stuff we could talk about there but my point is just that i think it is now very difficult for anyone to just not be on social media at all like go cold turkey, which is what I had done. <laughs> like I hadn't been on Facebook for like over a decade, which I do think was great for my mental health. I, I will say that. But I think too, there's sort of this perception that even posting sort of like daily things on your social media, it can somehow be detrimental. And what I mean by that is you know, you were talking about like someone going out and partying and posting that on social media. There are, and the most common example I can think of is actually teachers. Um, a lot of teachers get backlash if they go on vacation and they have a picture with their family and they're in a bathing suit. Uh, and people are like, you teach my kids, you shouldn't have a picture of you in a bathing suit. And they're like, I'm in a picture with my family on our family vacation. Like, this is not abnormal. And if my bathing suit scares you, I think that's another problem we need to be considering. And so I think there is like a really interesting question about how it comes to, because if it were, and the reason why I bring this up as well is because if it were a man in his bathing suit, would people be as concerned? Yeah. And I don't know that we'll ever know the answers. And I, I don't think it's a normative question like, should you or shouldn't you? Like, you should live your life the way that you feel like you want to live your life. But I would say that entering a profession that tends to be more conservative, um, you know, not across the board, but, you know, the law profession is known as being more conservative, is that, you know, some people that this this might be problematic for them and like so what like maybe you don't want to work at those places <laughs> but I just think like being aware that there are consequences that you might not even know mm -hmm. of right um you know and and decide if that makes sense for you right if you don't if you don't care then so be it right but um you, you know and I I don't know that let me think of how to put this. I do think that there is a, a double standard when it comes to males and females, but I, I do also think that things that males do online can also come back and bite them in oh, the behind, sure. right? And yeah. so um, whether it's the, um, you know, the bathing suit photo, like I think if I saw, you know, a man in a, in a, you know, swim trunks or whatever, like it would be the same as a woman. Like, man, do you think that's a good idea? I don't know. Like, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But um, I just think like everyone needs to know that everything is out there forever, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, we have finally, I think, understood at least at in our, our <laughs> age that it is out there forever, and people can and will find it. But yeah, I think that's that's good advice. I. 
I try to consider it as like, if I wouldn't do this in person, then I shouldn't put it on social media kind of thing was always my, you know, if I wouldn't act like this, if I were in front of the person, like if I wouldn't want to be in a bathing suit in front of my boss, if I wouldn't want to be doing that or whatever, uh, then we don't need to put it on social media. Right. Like, that yeah, kind of thing. I think that's a good litmus test. Like, would you be uncomfortable with your supervisor boss seeing this photo? Right. So, like, would I be OK with the dean seeing this photo of me on the beach? Like, and if the answer is yes, then OK. If the answer is no, then maybe you want to think about that a little bit more. And, you know, I actually think this is a good segue because we're talking about social media and what you're wearing. Yeah, and I think there's a, a lot to talk about that goes beyond social media in terms of, you know, what you wear as a female law student, lawyer. And I know that there's so many questions that female law students have. They don't want to make any missteps. And so you get the questions all the time, like, what do I wear? What's appropriate? What's not appropriate? So um, now might be a good time to to have that conversation. Too. Yeah, no, please. I mean, how, I guess there's a couple of elements, if you will, <laughs> when we talk about this, right? Yes. So how do you <laughs> professionally dress is one thing as a a woman who's going to be going on interviews, taking pictures, because they're going to take pictures of you for like promotional materials sometimes if you're doing different things. Uh, and then like going out to your internships or externships, what are the professional attire expectations? And then I think the other is sort of, and this was something, the reason why I bring this up is because this is something that I had to really, <laughs> I don't know that I'm particularly good at it still, but I have a very individualized sense of style. <laughs> like I yeah. like big jewelry, Tanya. I do. I just, I like it. And, I, <laughs> and you cannot I lie. Cannot, I cannot <laughs> let it go. It is part of who I am. <laughs> and so I learned, I will say, like I learned to tone down other things so that I could wear like bigger jewelry, but kind of what are what tend to be the like no no's when it comes to attire and you know how strictly do you have to adhere to them i guess is my second part of that question yeah i mean like i hate to phrase things in in terms of rules um i would say that if your goal is to sort of make a good impression get a job then at first you just maybe want to err on the side of caution, right? Even if it's not your preferred outfit, something that is fairly conservative, pantsuit, skirt suit, conservative colors, conservative shoes, like really boring, just like dress boring um, for the most part, if your goal is to not potentially ruffle any feathers and, um, maybe fly a little below the radar. Um, I think eventually when you get a job, you're at a firm, you're doing your thing, you're, you know, you're out there in the world, um, then you can kind of do whatever you want, right? You can wear your big jewelry. I could wear my like multicolored shoes. Like oh, yeah. then, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and there's a little bit more scope for individuality later. And that's not to say that like if if you want to just dress in like whatever you want as a law student, have at it. Like 
it's just the same kind of message as a social media message is that um, in your career, you're going to encounter people who might view that as a little too bold, a little too funky, right? And that might preclude you from some job opportunities. Should it be that way? No, of course not. But people like have all sorts of judgments, right? And people are in all different age demographics. And so if they see you showing up with your like bright colors and big jewelry and, you know, platform shoes, they might be like, uh, this person's just like a little too much. Like this outfit might say something about them. So if you don't want to run that risk, then it's easiest to be safe at the beginning, but then to you know, branch out and, and do whatever you want afterwards. That's kind of my advice. Yeah, no, and I, I think it's great advice. That's that's what I did, right? I showed up, I was ultra conservative, and then slowly I started sneaking in my big jewelry and my bright colors. And, and by that point, you know, most of my coworkers already knew me. The judges I was appearing before knew me and they were like, oh, look, it's Crystal. How nice. <laughs> like they knew that that was just like who I was. Right. And they they embraced me for that, I would say. But yeah, going sort of conservative at first is generally the the best bet. And I would also add ask somebody. Uh, and I say that because <laughs> one of the judges I was clerking for was helping me prepare for my interview to work at another part of the government. And I was like, okay, so I have a, a gray suit with a white cream shirt, or I have a blue Navy blue suit with a black shirt. And immediately they were like, Oh, you have to wear the gray. Yeah. You can't wear blue and black. That's no, not... you can't blue and black. You sh you shall not do or black and blue. Yeah. You shall not do. And I was like, but why? Cause especially at the time it was very on trend and, okay. and like, no, nobody cares. Like, no, don't do that. And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> I've almost made the worst faux pas ever, but I, I would have never known this if I didn't ask. And so, you know, get people's opinions. People don't mind. It's good to ask, especially if you're, you have someone like that if you're working with or a professor, or you've been friends and family that you feel comfortable, get their opinion because you'll feel much more confident going into the situation. And that's always a good thing. Yeah, no, I agree. I think there's, you know, some tried and tested rules for, and, and I use the term rules loosely, again, just like do whatever you want to do. But if you're going to, you know, ask what is the least objectionable thing to do, then like conservative colors, um, neutral colors, heels that are not sky high, heels that are not platform, you should wear pantyhose. Um, I know that a lot of people like want to go bare-legged. I feel like for interviews or something where at least something's on the line, you don't want to do that because, you know, it, it comes across as maybe too casual, right? That you're not serious about, um, you know, what you're doing. And so um, I talk about some of these, these uh, things in my book, but again, like if, that's not what you want to do and you want like your, you know, Louboutin shoes and you think that's like how you want to go into your interview, then like you do you, right? Um, I think that's, that's fine. Cause you know what, at the end of the day, oh, I hate to say it, but like, no matter what you do, sometimes like there's no winning, right? And so you could be the most conservative person and someone will find fault with something you do. and 
you know, what's happened with me, especially early on when I was teaching, um, I would get comments about my clothing. And, you know, there were comments in my evaluations that I shouldn't wear dresses, that they're not professional. Um, there were comments about the slit in one of my skirts being too high. Uh. Um, and it was like part of a suit that I wore on my interview to the Supreme Court of Canada. So it's like a very conservative suit. But, you know, there were comments about how the slit was too high in, in my plum skirt. And so it was just like, being torn down. And in my case, it was by, you know, these, these students, these 1L students, my first year of teaching. And it was just like, you know, I'm, I'm dressing like I'm out, you know, in a Banana Republic and Taylor catalog, like I'm really conservative. And still, mm -hmm. like, these are the comments that you get. And, you know, it's tough, because at that point, it makes you really self-conscious about, mm -hmm what you what you wear and for a while I just had this like paranoia about like you know making sure that you know my blouses were not in any way see-through if I turned at a certain angle everything was like covered and it can't be too low cut and um is the skirt too short like it, you know it the comments really got to me not because they were true but because I was I was very young and I wanted to make a good impression and it seemed like the um comments weren't focused on my teaching they were focused on my clothing and that was just like it was really disappointing. And, um, right. you know, this is kind of like a different, um, this is not about the clothing per se. This is about how sometimes people try to take you down in different ways. And one of the ways is, is through these, you know, comments about clothing or appearance. And, um, you know, the worst part of this story is not that these comments were made by someone else in my contracts class like that I could get over the the worst thing was that you know these evaluations went to the dean and I had to sit down with mm -hmm. him and have a conversation and he wasn't like oh you're dressed inappropriate of course he wouldn't say that um he he was like oh there's some weird chatter in these um evaluations about your clothing and your shoes and it's just mm -hmm. weird chatter and I'm like yeah but it like but it's not true. Why are you even bringing it up? Like it was, it was mm -hmm. weird that he brought it up to me. And then he brought it up every year for like three years in a like, Oh, mm. you've moved past that. I don't see any more comments about your clothing. And he acted like somehow I, I fixed the problem, but there was never a problem. It's not like, mm -hmm. you know, I dressed a certain way and then a different way. It was that these comments were, motivated by something else that was going on in that in that class and the fact that the dean thought it was appropriate to sort of give it oxygen to to bring it up again and say like oh you overcame that no i didn't there was nothing to overcome those comments weren't like anything to begin with other than some weird attempt to undermine kind of my my authority in the classroom well, and it's sort of a cheap shot on your credibility, right? I mean, it's like, I don't have anything else to say, so this is what I'll put down. And I'm sorry that you had to go through that because that's not fair. But unfortunately, I think it is something at some point that all women see, whether it's in school or it's in the workforce, um, different things happen. I think 
a really common example, and this blew my mind, but there was a, we were visiting courtrooms here in New Orleans during law school and women were told they had to wear a skirt because that was a judge. You could walk into that judge's courtroom and that was their dress code for women. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, what year is it? This is. Yeah. I have no words for that. Yeah. (laughs) But that is still a thing. And, you know, I think too, there's a lot to be said for just not having any, having hard expectations without any context. And I think the best way to explain that too is with this skirts rule because yeah, you could wear a skirt year round in New Orleans, but if a judge in New Jersey where I'm originally from had that rule and you're going to make me parade around in a skirt at negative whatever degrees, like that's not really fair in a lot of ways. Like I should be able to wear pants if I want to. That just feels so gross, right? Yeah. There's a difference. Yeah. Between being, (laughs) Hey, you should be conservative and women should wear or must wear skirts. Like, right. Yeah, no, for sure. But I guess my point is too, is just like context matters, right? Like, cause here there was a, a female attorney that I knew and she always wore like dresses that showed her shoulders. She would carry a blazer, but she would wear the dresses without anything over. And some people were really upset by this. That and This seems like, to be a big issue, right? It the, really the shoulders. Is. And and I'm sorry, right now the feels like temp is 115 degrees. I'm not walking around in a blazer so that you can feel more comfortable. Look somewhere else. Like, what does it matter? It's hot. Please don't make me wear a blazer. Like it just makes no sense. Um, but I think a lot of that goes back to what you said about the legal profession and, and just the conservative nature of it. There are just these sort of social norms that pervade into like specifically what women wear and how they need to present themselves. Absolutely. The shoulder thing, it's weird, right? Because like so many dresses are made, like the sheath dresses where Mm -hmm. they, you know, like it bears your shoulder or you wear like a shell underneath you, like a camisole or a blouse underneath that doesn't have sleeves. And then in your office, if you're hot, you can take it off. And, you know, I tell the story in my book about my, um, one of my former students who went to a firm and was wearing a conservative suit and she had like a a light pink, I think, um, blouse on underneath and it was sleeveless and it was a hot summer day. And she was, I don't know if she stayed in her office or she went to the photocopier or something, but like some of the firm's female paralegals complained and then she got called in and basically told that she was dressed inappropriately. And, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's, it's tough, right? Because this doesn't seem to be like an outlier story from what you're saying, right? And no, so to be all. told like in some way you're dressed inappropriately, that makes you feel like you did something wrong when all you're doing is just like, you know, taking off your jacket in your office. Like you didn't know what the rules are and why are they, they the rules, right? And, um, and it just it feels so weird. And the fact that it was the female paralegals that complained, like it, it all feels like there's so much going on there. Um, that's like, you know, I don't think we have enough time to unpack all of that, but I think, you know, the point is there seem to be kind of unwritten rules in different places and you don't know what those unwritten rules are until you violate one of them. And then you get called in and you're made to feel like you, 
did something wrong, right? And I guess that is like a good way to wrap this particular issue up is like, what do you do when that happens? I mean, so they call you in and they say you're dressed inappropriately. You know, I, I mean, one thing I would say is make sure you clarify what exactly is inappropriate about like, you know, in a very respectful way. But can you explain to me what it's because you don't want to go out not knowing what the issue is clearly enough and then violate it again, mistakenly yeah. down the road. I think so, like, I'd ask to see. Yeah. I would ask to see like a written dress code and to ask specifically like what is, like you said, inappropriate. And if there is no written dress code, then like maybe ask them to explain why it's inappropriate or how you would have known. And I mean, I don't know. It's a, that's a really tough question, right? Because there is a huge power imbalance, right? So I'm talking about uh -huh. you coming in as an intern or as a young associate or summer associate. And so you're 22 years old, you need this job. And, you know, you've got a senior partner saying, you know, I just want to talk to you about your clothing. It's been brought to my attention, blah, blah, blah. So you're mortified. You're just like, oh my God, right? And so you might just freeze and just say, okay, of course I understand and go to your office and cry, right? Because that's, that's what I would have done. But I do think it's important to kind of stand your ground and ask specifically like how you could have known what you've done wrong. And, you know, um, I, I don't know that like now I don't think I would apologize. Right. I'm sure like maybe if I was 21, <laughs> I would have. But it's just like if you're if you're dressed in a way that you think is appropriate and that the vast majority of people on the street would think is appropriate, then you shouldn't have to be apologizing for for your clothing choices. So I would, you know say that you won't run afoul of whatever rules there are in the future but I don't I don't know that I would kind of put my tail between my legs and and apologize and sort of concede that I did something wrong if you have the internal strength to do that that would be my recommendation not to you know uh, like apologize and that actually is an interesting thought about how I mean, poignant in a way, like women do inherently feel a greater sense to apologize and just to apologize for things that really, like, at least in your, this scenario you're talking about, right, your, it's your clothes, but women tend to just apologize more for things that even don't even have anything to necessarily do with them. And so I think that's a big ask, but it's a valid ask. I, I appreciate it. Uh, what about, this kind of leads me to sort of inappropriate comments about, because when you're looking at someone's attire, obviously it could be that they're just looking at your attire, but it also could be that you're being objectified in some way. And so that can lead into more difficult topics of people making inappropriate sexualized comments towards you or otherwise about you, even if it's not at you. Um, and so unfortunately that as well does happen. You know, I think when you're talking about someone's attire, particularly a woman's attire, inherently there are a lot of side comments that come along with that. So things like, oh, you have a really high slit in your skirt, right. you're such and such, right? Right. Or you're showing a lot of shoulder, <laughs> right, right. Like, your sexy shoulders you <laughs> yeah <laughs> um or like that dress is really too tight 
um, people don't, you know, want to look at that or you're distracted. Or do want to look at that, right? Make, like, yeah, yeah. You're making people feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also even further comments. So like blatant statements, like you look really good in that, like blah, 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 where it's not like, oh, you look nice today. It's like, you look really great in that. I like the way that looks on you and kind of going further or essentially sexualizing and objectifying people. And so unfortunately that happens. Um, you know, do you have any thoughts on that or any advice you can share? Oh, this is another ick factor, right? I know. I, I, I got the chills when I was talking about it. I like, oh, I know. You know, it's it's difficult to give advice in the abstract because I think there's so many different contexts Very in which true. this could happen. And there are very many different power dynamics at play. And so it's, it's hard, like in the abstract to say, like, if somebody makes a comment, like, what do you, what do you do? And yeah, I, I've experienced this, like, you know, the comment with the, with the slit that was in an anonymous evaluation, but, you know, there've been comments that are made to your face in a way that just like make you uncomfortable. And I would say that I tend not to be a person, like a call out person, but that's just because I'm kind of scared to do it, right? Like Mm -hmm. I I don't want to create, like I don't want to be that person where somebody like makes a comment, maybe they meant it like in a nice way and maybe it's a generational thing and I don't want to be like, I am woman, hear me roar and that's highly inappropriate. And like, you know, so I, I, I tend not to do that. And so I just try to like move on from it, but I don't know that that's necessary good advice like just like grin and bear it I mean I am um, in in cases where it has been problematic like I've tried to ad- address it um, directly like I have a story I tell in in the book I don't know if you remember this um, the story mm-hmm. where the professor was playing jeopardy with his class mm-hmm. um, so there this was some years ago and and he was playing jeopardy and decided that it would be like a fun Jeopardy question to ask his 1L students, which professor, male and female, was the hottest at our school? And like, such bad judgment. I Like, I have no idea how you sit down and decide you're going to play class Jeopardy and like throw in questions like that. And um, I, I didn't know about this until after the fact. And the students told me that like, you know, he picked you know, certain male professor. And then he picked me for the female professor. And I was like, Ooh, that's just like icky. It was one of my first years teaching. So I felt like that kind of undermined my authority in the classroom. So I tried to talk to him about it. And, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't approach it like you did something wrong. Like I, um, he was, he was much older than I was. And I think he meant for it to be kind of funny, like tongue in cheek, whatever, relating right. to students. But, you know, I tried to get him to like, understand, like, I was, um, I think in my early thirties at the time or late twenties. And I was like trying to establish my authority in the classroom. And then when you like do something like that, I felt like it, it undermined me because it, it 
it made me not like the contracts professor, but it made me your choice for like hottest professor. Like uh, right. that just like, then I've got to come in the next day and the students have had that like experience and, you know, it's just, it's uncomfortable for me. So I tried to explain that to him and he didn't, he didn't seem to be like tracking too much. Like, I mean, he did, he apologized and, um, and then he like, he's like, but everyone thinks you're serious. Like they're going to take you seriously because you wear glasses. And I'm like, what? Mm. Like, so then mm. it like That's turned into thing, the whole like weird glasses fetish. Like, it, I don't know. It was, it was very uncomfortable. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I, I have like zero great ideas for uh, trying to, to deal with this. Like if it makes you uncomfortable, then in some way, shape or form, I think you should try to address it without, um, you know, severing relationships. Cause this is the thing, like you've got to work with these people or deal with these people going forward. Right. And I'm talking about in the environment where it, it's your colleagues. Um, and so to find a way forward, I think is the goal. Now it's a very different scenario where it's, you know, a student and it's like, let's say a professor that's hitting on her. Like that is right. completely out of bounds in that case you need to um to report it that's you know a, a violation of federal law like you should not be dealing with that mm -hmm. sort of thing um in the in the classroom environment or you know obviously like any sort of sexual harassment in the in the workplace um but you know there are people to talk to at law schools the associate dean the dean of students the title nine coordinator there might be like a professor that you feel like um can relate to you and maybe you want to start by talking to them. You know, I, I do feel like there are a lot of these issues that don't rise to the egregious level of so-and-so hit on me, but are somewhere like mm -hmm. a little bit lower than that. And students don't know how to deal with it. And I think you know, it's always helpful to talk to somebody. So find confidant at the law school and figure out like how to navigate the situation going forward. Yeah. And and I think the same applies for different workplaces, right? Depending on where you work, especially if you work at like a larger firm or you work for like I worked for the government, they have sort of policies in place, right? For how to handle these types of things when they arise between coworkers or in other situations. And so just become familiar with kind of the process and what it looks like, whether you're a law student and you're seeing it in law school because we know that's inappropriate or if you are in the workplace and you're seeing sexual harassment of some kind. And I, cause I think some places do a better job training people yeah. and letting them know of resources than others. Uh, and so unfortunately you kind of have to find them yourself in a lot of situations. And so just know that they're out there and go find them. If you feel, you know, follow your gut. If something doesn't feel right and gives you that icky feeling we've been talking about, you might want to talk to somebody and that's okay. Yeah. But you know, Crystal, what's, what's interesting about this is I think most of these scenarios that I'm thinking of exist in the mushy middle, right? They're not they the clear do, yeah. sexual harassment or something that is clearly kind of actionable where you need to take steps. It's like, a one-off comment or, you know, something that occurs in a meeting or in a hallway that you don't feel good about, but you're like, what am I going to do with this? You know, and you tend to let it 
go because it's nothing where like the person should be fired for it's probably nothing that you want to like make into an issue and in and of itself it's probably not a big deal um but it, it does i mean we're using ick a lot right <laughs> like it does increase the the ick factor right um and i think that um you know realizing that this stuff is bound to happen in some way, shape, or form. That's like a sad thing to say that this stuff is going to happen because it just it's does. True, it does. And, and the most important thing to do is to not let it in any way like eat away at your self-image or your self-esteem because sometimes these comments can really, um, even if it's like a somewhat innocuous comment, they can really bother you. Yeah, there was a comment. I'm like debating how much to say. There was a comment that was that was made to me about a year ago, and it still like plays in my mind. And it wasn't an overtly sexual comment, but it sort of had like an undertone. And it's it's nothing that I could respond to because a person very easily could have pivoted and said, "Oh no, this is this is what I meant." But like, but I know, right? Like it, it, it and. It just like it just made me wonder about things. And so like I think that's the biggest takeaway is all these stupid things people say and do, right? Don't let the stupid affect you, right? Don't let um these these little minor things that exist, like I said, in, in the mushy middle, not like pure sexism or sexual sure. harassment or anything sure. that would have a, like that kind of label attached to it. You know, don't, don't let that derail you. Yeah. And you're right. Most of the stuff is in that mushy kind of gray area. And it's usually like a passing comment of some kind, like, I had somebody once tell me your legs look really nice on that skirt. And I was like, that's nice. I think like, it's, it's like a weird thing when it happens. Right. Cause in the moment you're like, right. Oh, 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 that's weird. <laughs> maybe, maybe that should not have been yeah. said. Right. But at the same time, like, you know, and I think this comes into play a lot as well. I didn't feel unsafe. Right. right. And I think your safety is obviously always something you need to keep in mind. But I also think that when it, because society has kind of made safety and like resistance and all that kind of stuff a factor in how people interact with one another, it feels like, at least in my opinion as a woman, that if I don't feel unsafe, then it doesn't matter. Does that make any sense? Like that if it doesn't rise to a level where I feel yeah. unsafe, then I don't really have any right to be upset or I don't really have any right to say anything. And I don't know that, obviously, I don't know that that's true, but it, it is something that I, I feel and I'd imagine other women probably feel at some point as well. Um, and that's what I was trying to say with like your intuition. If it's in that mushy place, like, you know, it's okay to talk about it with necessary with people, but keep in mind that unfortunately, like you said, there are consequences and there can be really big repercussions. And I think a really big part of that is having to work with the person or having to see the person and having to be in the profession with the person if you're just a law student, right? And 
that's just part of how it is. And so you have to kind of consider how that factors into the equation for you, depending on what road you take, like whether you're going to say something to the person, exactly. whether you're going to address it, how you're going to address it, that kind of stuff. And so I guess, you know, this leads nicely into another topic if you're ready to move on. Sure. Yeah. I'm like, what's next? (laughs) Which is, you know, we've talked about now like faculty members essentially overtly making inappropriate comments of some degree to female law students. But what about when a teacher is essentially like teaching something that has weird gender undertones that maybe are not favorable to the female sex or they're having microaggressions or maybe they're showing biases in grading and that kind of stuff. You know, does that happen? What does that tend to look like? Yeah. I mean, the biases in grading, I think are probably, I don't want to say non-existent, but minimal, at least in the context of um, exams that are worth 100% and are graded blindly, right? So like, I don't know if it's a male or female that I'm grading. And so and and that's a good thing, right? So I I don't think that it plays out in that way. But I, I have heard that some females are uncomfortable in certain classroom discussions, um, particularly in like, classroom discussions with male professors. I mean, I tend not to hear that about female professors, but there are other dynamics at play there. And so um, whether it's a comment that a male professor makes or something that like a a kind of an off color joke or something on a PowerPoint screen, Mm -hmm. you know, I think um, this stuff uh, happens and can be uncomfortable. And then, of course, you don't know what to do, right? This is your professor. And like, what are you going to do? Go to their office and say like, oh, that, that, you know, meme that you put up on the screen, it wasn't very funny. And, you know, I'm, I felt uncomfortable. Right. And so um, I, I think that it's the same issue that you have where we were talking about what you do in, in the workplace, right? Are you going to complain about like everything that you like that makes you remotely uncomfortable? And certainly you can, and it's your right if that's what you want to do. Um, I think in certain circumstances, um, you know, I, I, try to tell students who come to me and say, oh, there was something inappropriate in this class. You know, I I try to tell students like to extend the most like good faith they can to that professor. And maybe there's like an alternative explanation for what was said or how it was said or how it was meant. And if it bothers them, then to to go and have a conversation like what you don't want is what a lot of people resort to nowadays, which is like the the indignant email. Right. Like I did not appreciate when you did this. Right. And so, like, if something is is genuinely a concern to you, you know, bring it to somebody's attention, have a conversation about it. I mean, that's, um, you know, what you need to do as an adult. And so um, I don't think it's it's good to sort of just be indignant and start a crusade or like, you know, like there's there's two sides to every story and like try to to deal with this in, in the most mature way possible. 
Well, when you put it like that, it makes me think that it's it's honestly just you honing your skill set <laughs> um, because you're going to be in a courtroom <laughs> or something at some point and somebody's going to say something that is awfully terrible and you're going to be like, I cannot believe that person just said that out loud and you have to act like it's right. totally fine and just calmly explain why that person should not have said what they said or they couldn't say what they said and so on. And sometimes maybe you as a student misunderstood Mm -hmm. and maybe like, I mean, there's a lot that happens in a classroom that somehow can get a little bit like lost in translation. And so, you know, I think most professors, you know, they, they love their job. They love their students. They're doing the best that they can. And I think cases where you've got the like overt bias or overt sexism or something like that are, are few and far between. I'm not saying they don't exist, but like, I really do think it's important important to to assume good faith. I agree. You'll I think the overt sort of scenario you'll know it when you see it because it won't be just you. Right. Everybody will kind of be like I can't believe that just happened. Um yes. And and you'll you'll kind of know it when you see it. And then as far as, you know, those sort of scenarios where you might have constructive criticism or helpful suggestions for how things might be improved in the future. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> right. Using this type of language. I think, I mean, I, I'm not against an email as long as it's done in a professional and sensitive and, and respectful way. And I guess what I wanted to ask as well is how would you feel about, and I think this is particularly relevant to you because it seems like students to some extent did this, but how do you, would you feel about doing something or leaving comments in the evaluations, like the course evaluations? Um, about. Because a lot of fact or a lot of students leave those types of thoughts until then. Here's right. an example. I can give you an example. So like, I taught a um I taught a lot of like criminal justice courses for a year or so. The course inherently involved discussion of how to respect pronouns and gender and things like that because and sexual orientation because the program was mainly people who were going to the Department of Corrections and the juvenile code here in Louisiana that pertains to those types of instances says you have to respect people's sexual orientation, gender identity. It was one of the first in the country that ever did it. It's, it's really interesting, actually. But my point is, I, I had to talk about it, yeah. right? Like, I'm not going to not talk about it. And so I explained that to them. And I got this long rant in one of my course evaluations that was like, she's imposing her political opinion and her non-religious beliefs upon me and blah, 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 blah. But like, if they would have just come and talked to me, I would have been like, listen, you can have those in your personal space, but the law says that you have to treat these folks equally. And this is how you go about doing that, right? Like we could have had a very healthy conversation about it, but instead they waited until the end of the semester and put it all in the course evaluation. Then I never saw them again. Yeah. So like, it's this weird sort of thing, but a lot of students do that because it's a, it feels to them like a safe, anonymous way to air any grievances. Right. But it's not productive in terms of a dialogue or going forward. Right. And so like from, from a professor's perspective, like if something that I do bothers you or you have a problem with it, like come and see me, I'd really love to be able to talk about it. I feel like in, in this day and age, I know it's like the social media age where people like are scared to communicate face to face, but that really is the best way for getting any issues 
you know, addressed and, and resolved. So like, instead of writing this nasty, I can't believe you did this, maybe you go talk to the professor and you realize that you misunderstood something or that you actually have more common ground than, than you thought. So that's obviously the mature thing to do. And, you know, the, the course evaluation should be about how you taught the course and not like, I didn't like this one particular thing you did on one particular day, which unfortunately, sometimes it, it comes down to that and, and it shouldn't, right? Right. So, yeah. And I mean, this is, this is kind of like an interesting segue, because, you know, with female professors, I feel like, Everything that I say and do and how I say and do it, everything is like scrutinized to the nth degree. So I have very little Mm -hmm. latitude to deviate from, you know, from anything. And I have um, heard of male professors who say quite egregious things in their class and like nothing, like students don't care, students think it's hilarious or whatever. And so it's interesting how um, students respond to male professors saying something versus female professors. Like, I feel like, you know, I have to be very careful in, you know, um, how I say, no, that's not the correct answer, you know, like, or someone will say, oh, your tone was kind of mean or hostile or whatever. Whereas, you know, there's male professors who are like, no, next. And they move on. And like students think that's hilarious. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting. The, um, the, gender dynamics at play in the classroom from the professor's perspective as well. And, um, you know, for those people who are listening, who are going to be law students, like it's just an interesting thought experiment to ask yourself whether you're treating your male and female professors differently, whether you view them differently and hold them to different standards. Well, and as soon as you said it, I immediately went back to law school and I thought when I was in a professor's classroom and that person identified as male, I had a certain expectation. And when I was in a classroom with a professor who identified as a female, I had another set of expectations. Like you just, and I don't can, know. Can you be more specific? Because I know like what I think you mean, but sure. yeah. <laughs> sure. Uh, so are you interviewing? Yes, me exactly. <laughs> I'm taking over your job. <laughs> uh, so, in in a in and I think okay. So let me take one quick step back before I explain it. This sort of mentality that I'm about to describe carries over into the legal profession 100, and I experienced it much more heavily once I became a lawyer. Uh, But sort of this idea of the strong, control, intelligent male professor versus the aggressive, bitchy, insensitive female professor. If they were doing the same two exact things, like you were describing the no, next, no, next. If they were both doing the same things, the male professor inherently, it felt like, oh, he really is trying to teach me. He's just being really good at his job. But then if a female professor did that, it was like, wow, she's, she's a bitch, right? I mean, 100%. for lack of a better description. Mm-hmm. And 
that happens in the legal profession all the time. It was one of the things that I struggled with the most. And the reason was I was for a very long time, the only female attorney in my office. And I was also one of the only people who was well versed in the exact subject matter that we were working in. And it's because a lot of, when you work in the federal government, people kind of come from all over the place. And, and then I was teaching them and then I was going to court on cases and you know, they were the hard cases because <laughs> there was no one else to take them. So I, I had to be, they were aggressive, hard cases. That's just the type of cases they were. And I would be sitting in the courtroom and I would have a male attorney say something and then I would answer back in the same tone. And it was like, uh, Miss Norton, can you please calm down? Who, who like, would say that? The judge or the uh, opposing yeah, counsel? the judge. <gasps> oh my judge. God. It drove me crazy. Then I had another instance, and this is what I think was the most startling. And you brought this up when you talked about the paralegals. I had another instance with a female attorney, and she really wanted me to do something because I was kind of like a trial attorney, so I could like do discretionary things, right? And what she was asking for, I could not do, period. Like just was not allowed. The law didn't allow it. I couldn't do it end of story. Yeah. <laughs> and like, that was it. Like, it wasn't a me opinion. I, it's not like, I just don't want to, it's, I cannot do this thing. And I will never forget when she freaked out, she started making all of, like, she was making like just causing a scene. And she called me a cold, heartless bitch. Wow. And I was sitting there and I was like, I cannot believe that this just happened. Then she demanded who, that I call my supervisor, who was a man, and make sure that he, he could clarify that I could not do this stuff. And that was really, I think, the moment when I realized that this is like inherent in sort of the structures in which we operate in as law students and lawyers. Yes. There's just sort of this element that it's built in. And that element is there when you walk into a classroom and you see a male professor and you view them differently unconsciously than you view a female professor. And it's the same thing when you walk into a courtroom and even people of the same gender have different expectations and treat different genders differently. Like she expected me to be softer and kinder and do things because I was a woman. Right. And, you know, I appreciate that. Like if I could have, I probably would have, but I couldn't. <laughs> so right. my point is though, like there are just these expectations and those things happen when you start in school and like in law school and they carry over into the profession, in my opinion. Uh, no, absolutely. No, this is a real thing. So this is called role congruence theory. And so basically people have prescribed gender roles. And so males need to be strong and assertive and analytical and females need to be kind, compassionate, caring. And as a female, the more you morph into the opposite gender role, the more you deviate from your gender role, the more backlash there is. And so backlash is the actual like um, term from the literature. And so um, what's interesting, well, this is all very interesting, but like what's most interesting is that females are punished the more they deviate from their gender role, but males are rewarded the more they deviate from their gender roles. And so I if you 
you have that, yeah. a male professor, so let's take my, my husband. He's a professor. He's a lawyer. And he is a really nice guy, right? So he's he's got oh, all the male sure. characteristics in that. He's like former army, 23 years, and he's very like sharp and analytical and smart and all those things but he's also just like such a nice guy and he tells jokes and he plays songs and he's warm and caring so students love him right because he has all the male characteristics but he's also like he's got the traditional female characteristics that he exhibits in terms of warmth right mm -hmm. but um and and so like males are rewarded for um taking on some of these like female characteristics and females are just doubly punished right so wow. it's it's kind of a no-win scenario there's a, a quote from from the book that i just want to read which kind of encapsulates Please. all of this um so it won't surprise you to know one bit that there are double standards when it comes to female lawyers. A male lawyer who is aggressive is called a shark in a good way. And a female lawyer who exhibits the same attributes is called a bitch, as we know, right? But mm, wait, there's well. uh, yeah, exactly. But wait, there's <laughs> more. If a female is too quiet and meek, then she does not have what it takes to be successful. As a female lawyer, you may find that you twist yourself into knots, trying to be different things to different people. You may feel like you have to be kind and reassuring to clients, assertive but not overly domineering in court, and the right level of confidence in meetings. I can tell you it is exhausting. While I don't currently practice law, I feel like I walk a fine line all day, every day. Be nice, but not too nice. Be assertive, but not too assertive. Watch your tone. Try not to come across as intimidating or condescending. So, I mean, that's 100% it. Like, no matter what you Nailed do, it. it's, it's kind of a no-win scenario, right? Because if I am the professor that I think I need to be for my students, which is a little hard-ass, right? Like, it's not <laughs> – I feel like – if I'm teaching you, then I'm not going to sit there and tell you stories and bring you cookies, right? Like I'm teaching you, I'm teaching you how to be a good legal thinker, right? And if I do that in the way that I think is best, then that is going to dovetail with some of those characteristics that we typically associate with males being very agentic, for instance, being assertive, being, um, you know, more domineering. And so that's not going to win me any brownie points. Right. And so then you get comments like she's not nice. She's not caring enough. Right. And if I were super nice and super caring, then it would be some other critique. So it really truly is a scenario where oftentimes you you can't win. Right. So whether you are yourself or whether you try to be someone else, it doesn't matter because there uh, it, there's going to be a problem no matter what you do. And I, yeah, you summed up, you really should be interviewing me at this point. You like had a quote, you had a theory. No, that, that was, that was great. No. And I am glad that I could now put a name to kind of those feelings because you have them. And even if you know, they're kind of off, like this is incongruous. Like I shouldn't feel this particular way about a male professor because they're just a man. Like, right. You know that, but it's just so unconscious. It's like ingrained in you because that's what we're taught. Right. And it, it does manifest a lot. It really does. And I mean, I think it's good advice to try your best to be yourself 
right? Like be as authentic to yourself as you can. And I know <laughs> I try to, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I try to uh, preface certain things with like, if I know I'm going to be maybe a little more aggressive than most people would deign a woman should be, uh, I say right. that. <laughs> like, I'll usually just be like, listen, uh, I have strong feelings about this <laughs> and like, right. I'm going to, I'm going for it. So, so buckle in. Cause like, you know, to kind of tell people, because I, I'm not going to necessarily, I know I'm good at what I do. Like having, I finally have that confidence in myself. And so I'm not going to make myself lesser to make you feel better. Right. But it takes a right. long time to get there, especially I think for it women, does. like to feel that sort of security and this is who I am. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think your point about having to preface things, I think women adopt all these kind of safety behaviors, yeah. whether it's deliberate or um, inadvertent where they're like, you know, just so I understand what you're saying. Right. Or, or you kind of soften how, how you respond. Oh, um, oh yeah. And, you know, it's a very utilitarian thing that that you do. Another thing women do actually is use a lot of um, exclamation marks and emojis, oh, yeah. for instance, in emails to make it not seem like you are harsh mm -hmm. or angry because an email with just periods, which would be perfectly appropriate for a man to send, and they do send them all the time, would come across coming from a woman as being just cold. And... Um, so there are all these techniques that I noticed, you know, I read a, a book about this. I think it's called Machiavelli for Women. And, you know, I didn't know I was doing this, but I do. And I, um, I do it to make sure that I come across as so the right level to. of nice so as to not alienate people. I agree. I do it too. Um, it's, yeah, it's weird. Yeah, well, in a lot of like... Um... I'm sure it's my fault. Um, yes. <laughs> I might have misunderstood yeah. this. I, right? I'm confused. But, and, <laughs> and a lot of that I think stems from like, and I'm going to use kind of a word that is shiny right now, but tone policing, right? Sort of that whole idea that you should say things a certain way. And if you don't, then that message just won't be received. And people will tell you that you should be saying it a different way and how you say things matters. And then your message, what you're actually trying to say gets lost. And that's always what is right. like worse for me. I don't do it because I'm actually self-conscious. I don't think about like whatever <laughs> I, I more do it because I'm trying to get a point across and I can be sort of aware of these inconsistencies with how people view what women say when they say it a certain way, all I want to be. But if no one else is paying attention to it and no one else is doing it and I still need to get my message across, then I'm going to use the tools that work, whether I resent them or don't like them or not. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I think eventually that will maybe change. I don't know. At this point, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> I can tell you that like, I don't think men are reading their emails three times worried about tone. I can tell you my husband doesn't, right? Like, but I read mine. Yeah, I get too. him to read them. I'm like, I just want to make sure like, is there a tone issue here? Um, and, you know, it's, it's tone is a weird thing for, for women. And, uh, you know, like, 
I, I have heard very few people complain about men's tones, but a lot of people complain about, you know, something a woman said or how she said it or, or emailed. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, it's, it's women and other women too. And that just kind of, I think, circles back to our original thought here that that happens between women a lot too, right? Like other women judging the way other women talk to people or say things or do things or dress or any of these things. It's not necessarily just, you know, one gender and another. It's, it's within the gender as well. Uh, and I think like a, yeah. a lot of things like your book chapter and just different music and movies is kind of bringing light to that. And so I'm hoping within our lifetime, Tanya, at least, <laughs> that we will see some improvement. <laughs> I don't know. This this conversation is depressing me <laughs> because, so like I said, we've used the word ick like three or four times. But, I got full body chills because um, I was so grossed out, Tanya. I mean, that's something. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot more like, you know, I have a ton of stories in, in my book. And I'm sure you have a ton of stories. Mm-hmm. Everyone that's the sad everybody, thing is yeah, like, everybody. when you mm-hmm. when you get to this point in your career, you got a ton of stories. And like, I didn't write about my bad stories, right? Like, I wrote about the ones that could be written sure. about. Um, and so mm-hmm. it, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's an important conversation to to have, but not a super fun one to kind of like go back and revisit. No, definitely not. And if I could, I'd just like to end on just, you know, we touched upon this in some of our first episodes when we talked, just like find, find your people, find your safe space, you know, have someone to talk because inevitably these types of issues are going to come up for you as a woman in law school and in law. And so just have somewhere you can go to kind of talk through them, analyze them if you want to, you know, work through them, feel supported, feel heard, feel, you know, because there is a very isolating component to these types of situations when any of these things happen uh, that we've talked about where you're like, am I making this up? Did that not really happen? Do I have any right to feel upset? Like you have all these questions that come up. And so just having someone or uh, an outlet to kind of work through those thoughts is important. Yeah. Even if it's someone outside of the law school, because some of this drama, like I said, happens with your girlfriends in law school. The people who you should be talking to about some Mm -hmm. of this stuff are sometimes the kind of the worst offenders. And so it's it's important to find, you know, like I said, like a family member or someone, because otherwise this kind of stuff just like eats away at you. Right. Yeah. Um, It makes you jaded real fast. (laughs) <laughs> it really does. It really yeah. does. And so and and if there's a way that you can find a female mentor like in the law school whether that's a prof- uh, um a professor or an administrator um you know that that I think is also really important and and something that's difficult to do like I had a lot of trouble with mentors right um Mm. so they're even at this level um there's there's weird stuff going on in terms of of mentorship and it's it's not all rah-rah girls we're all in this together it's not the barbie movie right like in the real world in law in academia there's a lot of you know 
jealousy and weirdness that goes on. And so it's like, even though I, I think you should try to find a female mentor, um, it might be difficult, right? And and it has been difficult for for me. Um, but, you know, as, as a student, that might be a little bit easier. Yeah. And I mean, I think your goal, like there's this sort of goal, like you want to have like a group of friends and like all these things, but, like one person's enough. Right. I mean, I had, I was very fortunate to have some great mentors, um, who am I, I'm still in touch with, um, and they're lovely people, but they're also maybe what you might call, and this is an interesting thought. They're, they're like non-traditional. Yeah. Like, law professors in the sense that like they're just very I don't know like I loved the one because she had like a lot of piercings in her and like, <laughs> and, like but you know what I mean like they're not like your which is maybe who you would think of really well. the, yeah yeah and so you know it's it's no different when you're trying to find a mentor like find someone who's like resonates with you and and who you are and I think the problem is that is tough to do right like just because of the general sort of field that we work in. It's a conservative one or a certain type of, of person tends to gravitate towards it. But right. Yeah. And also I think as like, as young um, law students, you know, you're like in your early twenties, it's very intimidating to try to forge sure. a relationship with somebody who's like an, an older, an older woman in the field, you know what I mean? Whether, whether it be like a professor or yeah, exactly. That's 32. Right. <laughs> so, you know, just th that like, Eight, not not so much the age gap as the professional gap between the two might feel mm -hmm. a little bit in, intimidating, right? And so um, I think it's it's very important that you try to have someone like that in your life, not not just as a, like a female mentor, but just like as a mentor, period, right? And that's period. true, mm -hmm. you know, males and females. But um, because of all the extra layer of BS. <laughs> I was like, how do I put this that women have to deal with, you know, finding someone who maybe can understand who's been through some of this stuff. Um, I think that's, that's really helpful. It's not to say that misery loves company, but you know, having someone that can actually relate to what you're going through, I think is, is helpful. Yeah. Any, someone who can offer you a safe space is, you know, yeah. like a safe space to just talk about things and, and work through them. And, you know, I think I'm best friends with the judge I clerked for. <laughs> yeah. And, and I call, we've now progressed where we call each other about everything. And she's like, I don't even know, she must be, I'm not going to say her age, but she's a lot older than I am. Yeah. Um, but, you know, those types of, of, relationships in general are hard to find, but they can be so worth it when you find it. And so try to find someone like that to kind of help you work through these issues. Cause unfortunately, like we said, we're, you're going to see them. Um, before we close out, Tanya, is there any other topics that you wanted to talk about? The only thing I could think of yeah. is like dating. Oh, and, <laughs> well, I do its own podcast. So yeah, can... yeah. Don't yeah. do it. Don't date anyone in law school. No, actually, <laughs> one thing I did want to talk about that I think is important, um, and you and I had sort of talked about this um, uh, earlier, it was how 
being a females related to imposter syndrome and how all oh, yes. like gender dynamics are are bound up in that. So I think that's an important thing, um, particularly as female students are starting law school, to um, to realize that they might feel a little bit out of place, right? Um, when you think of the stereotypical law student, you think of somebody who is very confident, very uh, um, assertive, opinionated, um, a very good public speaker. And um, a lot of females maybe don't think of themselves that way. They might be a little bit more introverted. They might not be comfortable speaking in public. They might um, be a little bit shy. And so something like the Socratic method, for instance, tends to be terrifying for a lot of female students, at least um, the female students that I've taught. And, um, and so I think that there might be some concerns early on, like for females thinking, hey, like, I'm not meant to be a lawyer, right? Like, this is not me. This is not for me. Like, and you can't really see yourself um, in this in this role that you have um, associated with being a lawyer, right? Because you're not that person who's got their hand up all the time. You're not that person who does this like wonderful speech in class. And then you're like, I, I can't do it. Like I, maybe I should quit. Maybe I don't belong here. And so, you know, I would say for those female students that like lawyers come in all shapes and forms. And just because we might associate that stereotypical kind of law student, aggressive, assertive, that kind of thing. That's not the only kind of lawyer that's out there. And so you will find your voice, you will find your your path. And just because you're having some feelings of, of insecurity or feeling like you don't fit the mold, um, that's okay. And that's to be expected. And it might even last a long time. It might last like the duration of law school, right? That doesn't mean it's a reason to like to quit or to second guess yourself. It's just that like we've been programmed to think of lawyers a certain way. And so if you don't look that way and act that way, then it can be uncomfortable to come into that space. Yeah. I just learned a lot about myself in law school. And I think most people do because it puts you in situations you might not have ever been in or you had, hadn't really thought about. And I think when you're confronted with how you might not fit the mold and stuff like that, or all these comments about your appearance, like all these things we've talked about, even the most confident person in all of their abilities and all of the things will feel insecure about something at that point, because that's just a natural reaction to someone critiquing you. Yeah. Right? Um, but as you go on, you know, just a little from for from a looking back hindsight 2020 perspective kind of thing like eventually you'll learn to love a lot of the things that maybe you felt were really difficult about yourself at the, at that point so like while it might feel uncomfortable now and you might be struggling with it like if you love the law and you love being in the programs or whatever the case may be you know stick it out it'll it'll work out and i think a really good example is i'm commonly um described as what you might call 
uh, intense. Is a word <laughs> Me too. I'm commonly, you're very uh, intense. Yes. <laughs> and that used to make me, and I'm not a necessarily a self-conscious person, but that always gave me imposter syndrome. That always made me feel like I was doing something wrong. Like I just didn't fit in with what people expected of me. And as time has gone on, I really embraced my intensity. Uh, and I think, you know, I love that part of me, but that was not always the case. And so you'll work through it and time will help you kind of get that way and, and try not to take it too personally because like someone's comments like that probably says more about them too than it does about just yeah. you. And I think and it's don't just have impo- that like derail your whole career. Sorry. No, absolutely. Saying, don't, have, don't let that derail your whole career. Cause that's like what you're talking about right now. Right. Yeah. I mean, you should do things on your own terms and be who you are. Right. And so, you know, ultimately, if you're like a shy and introverted person, certainly you can work on that on the margins. Right. And that's probably a good thing. But like, you're not going to be um, this whole other version of yourself. Right. And, and there's so right. much room for all different types of lawyers. Right. And, um, if that means you're just like in a cubicle doing tax work, then that's what it means. And if it means you're like litigating cases <laughs> in front of appellate courts, then that's what it means. Um, and so like, I just think that you should, you know, always work on, improving yourself, but not changing yourself, if that makes sense. Yeah. And your weaknesses can be your strengths, right? Like someone who is more and more, you know, reserved and wants to sit in a cubicle and do tax, like I'm all for you. Good for you. Like we need people to do those things and that's not really my cup of tea. (laughs) And so, you know, like embrace those things about yourself because they can really turn into your strengths if you do improve upon them and learn to feel confident in them. And, you know, don't let what other people say deter you from that journey because it's, it's pretty cool when you finally get there. I'm like, yeah, I'm intense and I love it. <laughs> Except when somebody says it in a context where you start thinking like, oh, what did they mean by that? And That's what did true. I, you know, and then you start the like the cycle in your head and it, or you know, it results in like further commentary. Like, like like you're intense and I'm like, okay, we could just stop at the you're just like part. stop it. You're intense. With that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tanya. Well, is there anything else that we wanted to talk about today? I know we've covered like a lot. We, co- we have covered a lot of ground. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to save some stuff for our next podcast. I know. And we have so many interesting things to talk about. And so thank you so much again for being here with me. I really appreciate it. I know that law students are going to love this information. And I think it really just fits in with a lot that's going on in the world right now. So thank you for taking the time to come back. I really appreciate it. Of course. Well, thank you for having me. And that brings this bonus episode of the Law School Lounge to a close. 
As I mentioned at the start of this episode, we are considering turning this into a mini series with more guests, deeper conversation, and different topics. If you'd like to see that happen, please be sure to share and let us know on social media. You can also reach us by email, whether it's about the potential mini series or any other recommendations for coverage in future episodes, to Law School Lounge Pod at caplaw.com. And of course, be sure to check out Tanya Monastir's book, Shit No One Tells You About Law School. You can find it on Amazon. You can also find it on our website at cap-press.com. Thank you so much again for joining us. We're so glad that you're here and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>